6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler continues his session entitled, The Book of Daniel. The belief in the, among the Hebrew scholars is that the encryption that was used in the handwriting of the wall was a form of atbash, which means the handwriting of the wall, assuming it was atbash, would have said something like this, except it would be Aramaic letters rather than the, these letters that they use today. And using the atbash encryption and transposing, you get what Daniel ended up reading to them. Remember that all languages go towards Jerusalem. In other words, all all like everybody east of Jerusalem goes from right to left. Hebrew, Aramaic, Sanskrit, etc., etc., etc. All nations west of Jerusalem go from left to right. English, Latin, Russian, Greek, uh, you name it. So anyway, so remember Hebrew goes backwards from our point of view. Anyway, so Daniel says many, many. That means, that the word means, by the way, there, also these lang- the, the Hebrew only uses consonants. The vowels are inferred. That's a way of bandwidth reduction and so forth, but I won't get into all that here. Many, many means, it means numbered or reckoned. And he interprets it. He says, God hath numbered your kingdom and finished it. The way we would abbreviate this, your number's up. Okay? The next word was tekel, which is, uh, uh, means weighed. Thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting, Daniel explains. The third word is uh, perez, which means broken or divided. It says, Thy kingdom is div- divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now something that's also kind of, and by the way, in your King James it say you farsen, the you is simply a conjunction, and the farsen is the plural of Paris, but don't worry about that in the transliteration. If you infer a different vowel than the E, say an A, a paras, is the word for Persians. So there's a pun hidden in here also that's not brought up in your normal translations. But any cases, of course, is what Daniel announces. And uh, that night, of course, Belshazzar is slain and the Persians take over the city. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in the next session because we'll get to Ezra and I'll use that occasion to explain what Cyrus did when Cyrus makes his grand entrance. And that's a, that's a great scene, but we'll hold that for the next session. In uh, Daniel 6, by now Daniel's about 83 years old, and one of the interesting things about Daniel's career is that he rises to power in the Second Empire. In other words, he was the number two man, so to speak, or he was high up under Nebuchadnezzar. He rose because he interpreted Daniel 2. He was given great privileges and responsibilities under Nebuchadnezzar. When the Persians take over the Babylonians, he again rises to uh, power. To, he was, he's the number three ruler in the kingdom. And uh, very prominent, even though he's 83. And uh, in fact, he is appointed Rab Mag, the chief of the Magi. 
You need to understand the Magi for lots of reasons. The Magi were a hereditary priesthood that had the power to appoint the king. In other words, they were a priestly sect, it was religious, and yet it was also administrative. That's where we get the word magistrate from that word, magi. But they were hereditary. They were Medes. In the combined empire, the Medes and the Persians, the Medes had that particular role. Daniel is appointed the Rab Mag, the head of that priesthood. Now how do you think it went over for these Medes to be now reporting to a Jew? They were not excited about the prospect, apparently, because they're the ones, I believe, that engineered this uh, uh, execu attempted execution of Daniel. So the jealous rivals entrapped him into the lion's den. The king of the Persians, they had a strange law in, among them in, in Persia that the king could write a law, but he could not change it once it's written. We find that operative here in Daniel 6. You'll also, it's essential to understand for the book of Esther that we'll come to later, next session. But uh, in any case, uh, the king is tricked into signing this document, and Dan if anyone's found praying to the wrong god, he gets to the lion's den. Of course, Daniel is very faithful, and he is praying, and uh, so he gets into this lion's den. You all know the story. It's interesting that the king himself was upset, but he couldn't change it. And that next morning he rushes there to see if Daniel's okay. He, he cares about Daniel. You see that all through this. And Daniel, of course, is miraculously spared. But something that is implied by this and some other writings is that Daniel apparently received some prophecies that he entrusted to a cabal, a secret subgroup of the Magi that passed it on for 500 years. And these guys are the guys that follow the star to Bethlehem. And there's circumstances around that you need to understand. The Parthian Empire was the rival to Rome. And you need to understand that and who they were to really understand why Herod was so nervous when they arrived. And why he was so different to them. There's a whole background there. But ultimately these Magi would follow a prophecy that would lead them to a manger in Bethlehem. And we'll deal with that, of course, when we get to Matthew chapter 2. Well, that, we've gone through half the book of Daniel. The, the, the last half are prophecies. There are the four beasts of Daniel 7, Ram and Hego to Daniel 8, the 70 weeks of Daniel 9, the dark side of the spiritual warfare thing in Daniel 10, and the climax of the book in Daniel 11 and 12. It's the final consummation of all things. Times of the Gentiles. We, we went through, bear in mind, we're looking at history through the lens of Israel. But here, in this particular segment of the Bible, it's sort of an exception. We're going to see all of Gentile history in overview. And it's interesting, there's only four empires involved. Not seven or three or whatever. Four. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Those four. The fifth one will be God actually setting up His own kingdom on the planet Earth. That fourth empire will be in two phases, and we'll get into that. We went through Daniel chapter 2. The gold, the silver, the brass, the iron, and so forth. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel himself is treated to a series of visions. Daniel 2 was given to a man, and we see these empires as man would see them, bright shiny metals. Daniel is given a vision of how they look to God, and the subject is the same, but the view is quite different. God sees them as a series of voracious beasts. The first is likened to a winged lion. And he's followed by a bear that rises up on one side. 
There's another one that's sort of like a winged leopard. It moves so fast it doesn't even touch the ground. And then there's the last one. Daniel can't find an animal to even liken it to. He calls it the great and terrible beast. And it goes into a phase with ten heads and so on. And we'll recognize the ten toes on the one hand, the ten heads on the other. We're going to realize these things to fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. And the, of course, the winged lion was a symbol of Babylon. The bear on one side uh, is uh, uh, raises up on one side. Uh, the Persians and the Mede, it was a coalition in which the Persians were end up end up being dominant. And of course, the Greek Empire was characterized by its rapidity. Alexander, in 12 years, conquers the world. Just a few years. At age of 29, he falls on his bed crying, there's no other world, worlds left to conquer. But Rome, of course, emerges in roughly 68 B.C. And the Battle of Actium is when Octavius uh, defeats Mark Anthony and becomes Caesar Augustus, if you will. And you finally get down to about 284 A.D. when Diocletian divides the empire. Then it's grown so big, he divides it into the two legs. In 312 A.D., Constantine takes over. He's so fed up with the politics in Rome, he moves the capital of the world to Byzantium. Calls it Constantinople, the new Rome. In 476, the Western Empire, of course, breaks into pieces, and every element's had its, had its day in the sun. But let's go to Daniel 8, the ram and the he-goat. Oh, and by the way, Daniel 7 describes the final empire as when, God, when Christ takes over the world. And it goes into all that. Daniel 8 ta is, a, is a detail now on the Persians and the Greeks. This is about two years after the vision of Daniel chapter 7. It's about 12 years before Daniel chapter 5 when Babylon falls, just to give you a rough feeling where this fits in chronologically. And uh, the ram is defeated by the goat, the rapid goat coming from the west. It's clearly, it's a it's, it's, it's very vivid description of Alexander's conquest of the Persians. This notable horn, namely Alexander himself, is killed and uh, four generals divide up the empire. And there's a little horn that has a key role at the end. That's going to be important later. And Daniel interprets this for us. A leader from the west, obviously Alexander the Great, will subdue the Medo-Persian Empire. Alexander the Great crosses the Hellespont with 35,000 troops, and he's fighting a powerful army in the hundreds of thousands. And he, in, in a series of three battles, wins, takes them on. He was a genius, an incredible general, and he would be out there leading his troops. And he turned several of those battles from defeat to victory by his personal involvement absolutely legendary series of events that are well documented and there's obviously a lot of popular movies coming out about it and so forth. The one-horned goat was the symbol of the ancient Macedonians. Ares the ram is the symbol of Persia. Capricorn the goat, the symbol of Greece. And in May 30, 334 he crossed the Hellespont with 35,000 troops and first met, defeated the Persians at the Granicus River. And then the, uh, a year later he finds himself uh, at uh, the Battle of Isis, and wins that one. The final big one was Gagamela, October 331 B.C., which establishes the Greek Empire as the dominant guys of the block here. When Alexander dies shortly thereafter, he makes Babylon his capital, he finally dies. He goes all, he, by the way, he conquers all the way to India. Cassander takes the uh, western part, the four generals divide it up. 
Lysimachus uh, takes uh, Thrace, Bithynia, and most of Asia Minor, Asia Minor being what we think of as Turkey. Ptolemy uh, takes the south, Egypt, Cyrene, and part of Arabia. And Seleucus takes the east, Syria, and lands to the east, all the way to India, but much of that's hard to hang on to. In this era, Seleucus, there's going to be a guy rise we're going to talk about more in the next session, Antiochus Epiphanes. He's a, he's a particular leader. He's not very important from a secular point of view. He's extremely important from a biblical point of view, and we'll get into that. But I want to focus very specifically on what's the most astonishing passage in the entire Bible. It's the one that impacted my life as a teenager and has ne never ceased to. In those days, the materials that I, I was uh, treated to by some friends were very rare, and it was an unusual situation. Today, the materials we're dealing with are readily available in any any competent uh, book source. Uh, so you can check this all out. It's uh, absolutely astonishing. Daniel chapter 9. A little bit of background you want to, as we go into this, you want to understand the history of the English Bible a little bit. The original Hebrew is sometimes called by scholars the Vorlaga, but in 285 BC, before Christ, uh, it was translated into Greek. In those days, Greek was being enforced as a language worldwide because of the influence of Alexander and his successors. If you were Jewish, you probably didn't know Hebrew except for ceremonial purposes, much as a, a Catholic knows Latin. It wasn't a common language to you. If you were a Jew that was living in that world, you spoke Greek, you had a desire to have your scriptures in your natural language, Greek. Well, under Ptolemy uh, Philadelphus in Alexandria, the primary literary capital of the world in that time, he funded the translation of the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament, into Greek. It took 15 years. And uh, we called the result of that work the Septuagint. It involved 70 scholars, some say 72 scholars, um, the best they could find to do the translation. And so they call that translation the Septuagint, fancy word for 70. It's usually abbreviated in Roman numeral 70, LXX. But the point is, we have that work product. The Old Testament, as it existed three centuries before the ministry period of the New Testament, uh, it's, it's in our hands. It, it was in, Daniel was in black and white. I want to emphasize that because you can set aside who wrote what book when, doesn't matter. It was in black and white three centuries before the Gospel period. In fact, it's the Septuagint that becomes the Christian's Bible. Most of the quotes in the New Testament that are taken from the Old Testament are from the Greek Old Testament, not the Hebrew. So it's the Septuagint they're quoting from, interestingly enough. And so I want you to be conscious of the fact that we've got 300 year anticipation of the New Testament here. Now when four disciples come to Jesus for a confidential briefing on a second coming, He gives them a two chapter answer in Matthew. It's also recounted in Mark 13 and Luke 21. And in that, Jesus identifies the key event of end time prophecy. He points them to the passage we're going to look at. He says to the disciples, when ye therefore shall see... He first of all lists a bunch of things that are not signs. This, that, and the other thing will happen, but the end is not yet. But then he gets to verse 15 of Matthew 24. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth let him understand, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains and and you split, and you split now. He goes on for several verses to explain that. We'll, go at, we'll look at that later. But how many of you read that on the screen? Have you seen that passage? I did a dirty trick on you. 
Because if you read that, you know, there's a, there's a part of this is written to you. It says, Whoso readeth, let him understand. You're, we're going to discover this is, gets a little technical, but it's clearly the intent of Jesus Christ that his reader understand what he's pointing to here. You with me? We'll talk about the abomination des desolation later, but I want you to notice it's spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Jesus Christ authenticates Daniel that he was a prophet, and he specifically points to the verses we're going to be looking at as the key to the, to the end times. And so let's just take a look at this. Daniel, Daniel 9 is the chapter with the interrupted prayer. And uh, first 19 verses. Daniel is reading, he's near the end of the 70 year period. He's reading from the book of Jeremiah, and he's reading where Jeremiah predicts that the captivity would be for 70 years. And he knows that the 70 years are almost over, so what does Daniel do about it? He goes to prayer. See, we're supposed to do the same thing. Most of when we get excited about the end time, boy, Jesus is coming soon, what do we do about it? What we're supposed to do is pray for it. That's what's in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come. That's a prayer. Prayer is God's way of enlisting you in what He's doing. Well, that's exactly, Daniel sets that example, and he goes in this prayer, and when he, it's frustrating that we can't take the time to get into the prayer, but even in the English translation, as you read it, when, by the time you get to verse 18 and 19, you can feel Daniel tremble. As you read it, you'll see the frequency of the verbs start picking up. You can just feel he's getting into a frenzy, and his prayer is interrupted by the arrival of a most unusual visitor. Gabriel comes to see him. We have two archangels that are super angels that are, have names, and we know their job descriptions, Michael and, a and Gabriel. Michael is always a military commander on behalf of Israel. Gabriel is always an annunciator, always announcing something having to do with the Messiah, whether it's to Daniel here or to Mary and Luke, whichever. So Gabriel visits from verse 20 to 23, and he gives Daniel four verses that are, turn out to be the most astonishing verses in the Bible. They're, they're known as the 70 weeks of Daniel, from verse 24 through the end of the chapter, verse 27, four verses. 70 weeks of Daniel. Now there's 70 Shibuim, I'll come back to that in a minute. The first of the four verses is the scope. The second of the four verses is 69 weeks. Then we encounter an interval, and then the 70th week. Now this sounds pretty simple, but it's very important to understand that verse 25 encompasses 20, uh, 69 of the total weeks. Verse 27 encompasses the last final missing week. Verse 26 talks about things after verse 25, but before verse 27. Thus we infer the weeks are not contiguous. There's a gap. There's an interval. So once you understand that, it all flows and makes sense. The first of the four is verse 24, the scope. Seventy-sevens are determined upon thy people, upon thy holy city. Seventy-sevens, seventy shabuim, seventy-sevens is what it's really saying. If I told you, I've got to leave, I'll be back in a decade, when would you expect me? Ten years, exactly. See, I didn't say years, I just said a decade. In Hebrew, they have a week of days, we're obviously familiar with that. There's a week of weeks, that's what Shavuot is all about. 
There's a week of months, that's the, from uh, Nisan to Tishri, or Tishri to Nisan, either way, is uh, seven months. And they also have a sabbatical year, seven years. Six years, you can plow the land. The seventh year, you're supposed to leave it rest. So there's a rest for the land also. So in the Jewish mind, there's, se the seven, there's all kinds of sevens. But a, a week of years is a very common unit of measure. When Jacob labored for his wives, he, labeled, he, he labored for seven years, for one and seven years to the next one. He had to fulfill her week, is the expression in Genesis. And so on it goes. Well, anyway, so these are obviously weeks of years. Seventy-sevens, seventy weeks of years, are determined upon whom? Get this, it's very important to know this right away. Upon thy people in the holy city. This has nothing to do with the church. It has to do with, it's Jewish. Daniel was Jewish. Upon thy people and upon thy holy city. It's on, it's on the Jews in Jerusalem. It says, seventy-sevens are determined, or reckoned, upon thy people and upon the holy city, to do six things. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and the prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, we could spend some time going through each one of these, but it's pretty obvious that at least uh, as a group, they are not complete yet. Have we made an end of sins? Not so you'd notice. Have we finished transgressing? Pick up the daily paper anytime. Yeah, have we brought, brought in everlasting righteousness? And so on. So the point is, this, when this happens, when this is finally, when the 77's are completed, that's all she wrote. There's a real sense of completion here. Are you with me? So it isn't complete yet. So the next verse, verse 25, deals with 69 of those weeks. And this is the one I want to focus on. Know therefore, Gabriel says to Daniel, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, get the picture, Daniel is in, in Babylon. Jerusalem is in rubble a couple hundred miles to the west. But he knows that Jerusalem is, they're going to re the captivity is about over. It has a destiny to be rebuilt. Gabriel drops in and says, by the way, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah the King, shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks, and the street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troubled times. Now I want you to notice, from unto, there are milestones. The trigger, the beginning, is a commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem. Don't confuse that with the temple. The city is in view here, and I'll prove that to you in a minute. Unto the Mashiach Nagid, the word Nagid is first used of Saul, it's, it's Messiah the King, shall be seven plus sixty-two, three score and two. And the, notice the, the Holy Spirit adds something here, the street shall be built again and the wall, even troubled times. Why did the Holy Spirit put that in there? So you wouldn't get confused because it will be preceded by some decrees to rebuild the temple. The issue here is not the temple, it's the city of Jerusalem. Seventy-seven are determined upon thy people and the holy city, right? Okay. Now, so we have a mathematical prophecy. From the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the King shall be sixty-nine weeks it turns out we're indebted to Sir Robert Anderson, the head of Scotland Yard, his landmark study of 1894, where he recognized that in the Bible, for God's own reasons, he uh, 
deals in 360 day years. He does that in Genesis, he does that in Revelation. And there's a whole thing behind that we can get into. Uh, we do it when you study Joshua and, and the, the orbits of Mars and all that business, but I won't get into that here. We know that the biblical usage is 360 day years, and we're indebted to Robert Anderson for unraveling this whole thing by recognizing that particular thing. So 69 times 7 times 360 turns out to be 173,880 days. And you don't have to remember that number, we'll get to that in a minute, but um, they say there's, some of your Bible studies say there are four decrees to rebuild Jerusalem. Cyrus in 537, Darius, Artaxerxes 458, another one by Artaxerxes in 445, and these are all referred to in your Bible, by the way. But in verse 25, it spoke of Rechab, the street, and the wall, or the moat. And uh, those are Hebrew words. They have nothing to do with the temple, they have to do with the city. It turns out that it's the city, not the temple, that's in view in Daniel's prophecy. So these first three are having to do with the temple, not with the city. We're interested in the one by Artaxerxes Longimanus in 445 B.C. So we know where that decree is. We know that from records that that was marked, on our calendar would be March 14th to 445 B.C. The problem is, okay, great, when did Jesus allow himself to be presented as a king? Several times in the gospel period. They tried to take him as a king, and he says, my hour has not yet come. He slips away. In John 6 and some other places. Then one day, Jesus does something very bizarre. He not only permits it, he arranges it. To deliberately fulfill Zechariah 9.9. In Zechariah, the prophet said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just in having salvation, lowly, right upon an ass. In fact, a colt, the foal of an ass. The ki thy king cometh unto thee. How will be recognized? Riding this donkey. And of course, we recognize that right away, that uh, uh, as we look in Luke 19, when he's riding the donkey from Bethany up over the Mount of Olives, down through the Kedon Valley, Jerusalem. And as he does so, they lay down their palm branches and the coats, and they sing Psalm 118. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.